Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Mary Carr and Stuart Dybeck read from their own work and discuss how writing poetry relates to writing prose. Mary Carr is best known for The Liars Club, a memoir based on her childhood in East Texas, but she was first published as a poet. Reviewers have praised Carr for her command of colloquialisms, her humor, and the poetic quality of her prose. In 2004, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship for Poetry. She is currently a professor of literature at Syracuse University. Stuart Dybeck is the author of three books of fiction and two collections of poetry. His writing frequently draws on his childhood in the working-class neighborhoods of Chicago. His work is noted for its vivid sense of place and parable-like storytelling style. In 2007, he was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. He is currently a writer-in-residence at Northwestern University. This event was part of the Poetry Off the Shelf series and took place at the Newberry Library in Chicago on October 27, 2004. The program begins with Mary Carr. I'd like to thank the Poetry Foundation and Stephen Young. Someone just ran into me on the street and said, what are you working on? I've changed the titles of my two new forthcoming books. The memoir is now called Lit, and the book of poems is called Coat Hanger Bent Into Halo. And this person said, you know, what's the difference for you in writing poetry and prose? And I said, well, you know, prose is a lot longer. And the lines go all the way to the end of the page. Um, to some extent, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I also believe the difficulty in defining poetry as opposed to prose now is because for two centuries, I think, uh, poetry in general and, uh, and literature and most of the plastic arts and, as well, and even the performance arts that have been engaged in a kind of genre blur. Uh, we have poetic prose. Um, Joyce began as a poet and said, you know, everybody begins as a poet and then they figure out it's too hard. Um, which is a little bit how I feel about it. Um, I fell in love with poetry. I wanted to be a poet from the time I was five and my mother sat my chubby ass on Shakespeare's, uh, the Riverside Shakespeare to reach the table and I think I associated it with food. Um, but for me, and I began to memorize poems very early, Cummings, uh, the A.A. Milne poems from those Winnie the Pooh books. Um, I think of prose as, this is really a horrible thing to say, turning a trick. I think of writing a, a book of prose as, as, um, as a vocation, and I think of poetry as a kind of religion. Um, you never approach a page more blank. The prose writer never approaches or rarely approaches a page so blank as that, you know, poets have to face blank page after blank page after blank page. And I loved being a prose writer and having a project, you know, where, you know, at the very least, if it was Thursday the day before and you're writing a memoir, you can make it Friday the next day and tell yourself you've advanced civilization. Um, there's a, I think probably our most famous connection or I, between poetry and prose is Robert Lowell, who not only stole 
prose, um, stole from Moby Dick and Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Mann and uh, his wife's letters and pretty much everything he could get his mitts on. But his probably most famous book, the book Accused of Beginning Confessional Poetry, Life Studies, began as a work of prose when he had one of his many manic breakdowns, which was described like uh, someone said talking to him then was like talking to a machine gun with blazing eyes. And if you look at Lowell's um, poems prior to life studies, they're dense, they're heavily enjammed, they're, they're dogged in their evolution from the English, what Philip Larkin would have called the English line beginning with Milton. And then in life studies, the line begins to relax, he loses rhyme. His wife, Elizabeth Hardwick, had said to him, why not just say what happened? And he began to, as he said, he began to put more syllables into the poems. He had seen Allen Ginsberg and the Beats and William Carlos Williams give these readings. And he says, you know, Williams, who was, of course, first published in poetry as a young man, or not so young man, you know, was sort of beginning the free verse revolution or devolution, depending on which side of the fence you, you occupy. But he saw that, he said, Williams is doing something that was both poetry and beyond poetry. He said, I was still reading my old new criticism, this is Lowell, religious symbolic poems. And when I started reading to audiences, not only did they not understand, but I didn't understand. And so he began to use a more relaxed, natural line. And again, I think that's been a lot of what poetry has been trying to do when Eliot started putting overheard pieces of pub conversations into the wasteland. You know, we're trying to get the vernacular, the oral, the herd, you know, the music you hear on the street um, into what's sort of been handed down to us from uh, our ancestors. For me, Lowell would take, wrote this kind of, this kind of manic state, I think prose kind of grounded him and he was able, the poems from life studies are kind of lifted whole hog out of various pieces of the, this prose. The most famous is the essay 91 Revere Street, which was of course published in the middle of life studies. For me, my use of prose is opposite. For me, I start with the poem because, well, because I lack Lowell's talent, I think. Hopefully because I'm not manic depressive. Um, I don't need prose to sort of rein myself in, I think, the way he did. But for me, to arrive at the poem is to arrive at the world in a way. Prose is a rabbit hole I think a reader can go down. I mean, there's, we all know that experience of kind of drowning in a book, of closing 100 years of solitude and wanting to open it up again and start all over. I've probably read, you know, Anna Karenina 20 times in my life, and I'm sure I'll, I hope to read it 20 more. You know, the books, the books of prose we love. But prose, you can't keep prose in your mind. And prose for me, in some ways, doesn't love the world. It's a disappearance from the world, for me. I think for a, a great prose writer, that's not true. But for me, um, it takes me further away. It, it creates a world uh, that sort of blots out the everyday. Whereas poetry, I think when you read a great poem, 
you can put it down and be more awake and more enlivened. Or as, as Shelley said, that poetry should make us more human. Um, I think the aesthetic challenges of writing, if you're writing autobiographically, as I am in both my poetry and my prose, to make a poem is much harder um, in terms of the aesthetic challenges, but the emotional challenges of immersing yourself in, say, the events of your childhood, or let's say my childhood, um, can be a, um, overwhelming. Nobody really writes a memoir without drowning in it a little. The other thing I just want to say before I read a few poems is that I think very obviously because of the difference in length that prose favors information. This is such a dumb thing to say, but and poetry favors music. And that what you get from poetry that you don't get from prose, or what I get specifically mostly from lyric poetry, which is mostly what I read these days, or short narratives, poems of a page or less, is a whole artistic experience about as you know, big as my hand. You can download the whole thing into your head and be standing in the line with the slowest teller in America. And you're with John Keats. You sort of enter, you become a citizen of the city of ideas. With prose, you can remember, God, I loved it when that beautiful girl Remedios went up with the sheets and the butterflies came whenever she was around. And you can remember instants, you can remember characters, you can remember maybe a paragraph or a passage. You can't have the whole enchilada the way you can with a poem. And I don't think with any other piece of art, I don't think there's any other art form alive today, there's no other medium that can beat poetry's ass at that kind of concision and, and carrying with you and making mobile uh, an entire artistic experience. Um, which is what I have to say about poetry and prose. That said, I'll read a few of my ladies' verses. It also explains why my poems aren't longer. Um, I wanted to start with this poem called Disgraceland, uh, which was published recently in poetry. I became Catholic, just to be shocking for a moment. About six years ago, I was not a cradle Catholic. I'm not a victim. I'm a volunteer. And um, if you had told me I would, be I would be Catholic even 10 years ago, I would have laughed in your face and maybe even smacked you a little. Um, and so this is a poem about deciding to become Catholic, to take communion. Disgraceland. Before my first communion, I clung to doubt as Satan spider-like stalked the orb of dark surrounding Eden for a wormhole into paradise. God had formed me from gel in my mother's womb, injected by my dad's smart stalk. They swapped size until I came, smaller than a bite of burger. Quietly I grew till my lungs were done. Then the Lord sailed a soul like a lit arrow to inhabit me. Maybe that piercing made me howl at birth, or the masked creatures whose scalpel cut a lightning bolt to free me. 
I was hoisted by the heels and swatted, fed, and hauled around. Time-lapse photos show my fingers grow past crayon outlines. My feet come to fill spike heels. Eventually, I lurched around, kissed all the wrong mouths, got stewed, and sulked around. Christ always stood to one side with a glass of water. I swatted the sap away. When my thirst got great enough to ask, a clear stream welled up inside. Some jade wave buoyed me forward into the instant, and I found myself upright with a garden inside my own ribs a flourish. There, the arbor leafs, the vines, push out plump grapes. You are loved, someone said. Take that and eat it. Here's an example of a poem that comes directly from a piece of prose. Um, in the Liars Club, you know, I think everybody is tethered in some way to uh, an instant in childhood, usually the instant when the people you know behave as they've never behaved before. It's kind of terrible, isn't it, that you're kind of remembered for your one breach of character and not for the eight million times you took the garbage out on time. Now that I have a child, I bear this burden. It's uh, overdue pardon for mother with knife. Overdue pardon for mother with knife. I said to the woman today, anyone who doesn't understand wanting to kill a child never had one. <laughs> Some nights I startle up from sleep to gasp down your death again like a vial of poison and feel I'm five and see your flame-eyed shape raise the knife you failed to bury in my chest, which still can flash across some desert in me, searing me awake. I no longer curse that hand as I once did, but find of late a way to glorify the force that stayed it, set the blade aside. Last week in the city you loved most, the paradise, my birth, and very breathing stole from you. I paused at a shop window where spring heels floated above staggered pedestals, as if tiptoeing some drunken stare to the invisible. Through the mist barrier, your face became a flicker in the glass. Then holding my face as if I were a gift, your hands which grow now on the ends of my own arms. It was me, astonished, inside you. Again, in the chest, the heart's aperture, not a dagger slot, opened. There was the odd resolve I found in youth to guzzle down air like sweet spirits, as if a pillow just slid off my face. I'll read two more poems. I actually told this anecdote. Um, it's about my thesis advisor from school, who's a poet named Louise Glick, who's just sort of unceremoniously no longer the poet laureate of these United States. 
Um, and it's a poem about, I think there's, you know, Eliot has that great line and tradition in the individual talent that no poet makes it past the age of 25 without developing a sense of history. And I think it's about that moment, unfortunately about developing a sense of history, is you also realize you're a moron. It's a terrible thing as a young poet, brimming with this kind of inchoate hormonal gush to realize you're an idiot. The choice. So when I talk about the resident genius in the poem, that's the poet Louise Gluck. Once in northern England, I got a few pub drunks to drive to Wordsworth's house. Local thugs whose underheated VW, orange, took me fishtailing down icy hills through hedgerows in an unlit labyrinth, reminiscent of the library stacks I wandered around zombie-like each day not composing verses, but waiting in scarlet lipstick for the bars to open. I left my homeland, fleeing a man I'd faked first caring, then not caring about, and in months of Euclidean solitude, I'd writ no cogent phrase. The notebook in my knapsack was a talisman I carried into train stations so as not to look like a bimbo but bimbo I was. And open, the bound pages were only white wings to nap on. Near dawn, our caravan came to a sleet-glazed window, a child's stumpy desk with the poet's initials penknifed on top. It was my first stab of reverence when that hunger to emblazon some surface with oneself became barbarous wonder at someone else. W.W. Jagged as inverted Alps, unscalable as a cathedral's gold-lit dome. After that, grad school was a must. There, I posed as supplicant till enough magnificence had been poured down my throat that I could whiff the difference between it and the stench I spilled. When I told the resident genius that given the choice between writing and being happy, I'd pick the latter, she touched my folio with her pencil like a bad fairy's wand, <laughs> saying, don't worry, you don't have that choice. <laughs> and in a blink of my unmascared eye, the intricate world bloomed into being impossible to transcribe on the small bare page. It's the last poem I'll read. I'd also like to thank Dybeck for sitting so still with that alert, intelligent look on his face. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're up here with people like this and they're go you know they're going like behind your back. Not Dybeck though. Thanks, Stuart. Um, you haven't looked under the table. <laughs> That's right. You're down there. You've got little signs and stuff. My son just went off to college, but before he did, he, there's that, he took, it's the most amazing thing, he took my car keys, the keys to my car, and got in it and drove away. And seeing your kid drive for the first time, I always say it's like watching an antelope. 
you know, operate heavy equipment or something. You just think, oh my God, you know, he's just um, moments from death at any second. And this poem is about um, the requisite fender bender. A blessing from my 16 years son. I have this son who assembled inside me during Hurricane Gloria. In a flash, he appeared in a tiny blaze. Outside, pines toppled, phone lines snapped and hissed like cobras. Inside, he was a raw pearl, microscopic, luminous. Look at the muscled obelisk of him now, pawing through the icebox for more grapes. Sixteen years and not a bone broken nor single stitch. By his age, I was marked more ways and small. He's a slouching six-foot-three with implausible blue eyes which settle on the pages of Emerson's self-reliance with profound belligerence. <laughs> a girl with a navel ring could make his cell phone go brr. Or an afroed boy leaning on his mop at Taco Bell. Creatures strange to me as dragons or eels. Balanced on a kitchen stool, each gives counsel, arcane as any oracles. Bruce claims school is harshing my mellow. <laughs> Joe longs to date a tattooed girl because he wants a woman willing to do stuff she'll regret. They've come to lead my son into his broadening spiral. Someday soon, the tether will snap. I birthed my own mom into oblivion. The night my son smashed the car fender, then rode home in the rain-streaked cop car, he asked, did you and dad screw up this much? He let me tuck him in, my grandmother's wedding quilt from 1912 drawn to his goateed chin. Don't blame us, I said. You're your own idiot now. <laughs> At which he grinned. The cop said the girl in the crimped Chevy took it hard. He'd found my son awkwardly holding her in the canted headlights, where he draped his own coat over her shaking shoulders. My fault, he confessed right off. Nice kid, said the cop. Thank you. I want to thank Poetry Magazine, too, for in, in inviting me. Um, it's a magazine I revere, grew up revering, and so it's a real honor to, to uh, be able to uh, do an event for them. And uh, As it is to be in Mary's company, she's one of the most exhilarating people I know. She just suggested today I may name my cat after her. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Excellent name for any baby one of you might be having, too, by the way. I was thinking of maybe my cat Autumn Leaf, but in Chinese, actually. Mary Carr's all right. 
In summer waiting for night, we'd pose against the afterglow on corners watching traffic cruise through the neighborhood. Sometimes a car would go by without its headlights on and we'd yell, Lights! Lights! We'd keep yelling until the beams flashed on. It was usually immediate. The driver honking back thanks or flinching embarrassed behind the steering wheel. Or gunning past and we'd see his red taillights blink on. But there were times, who knows why, when drunk or high, stubborn or simply lost in that glide to somewhere else. The driver just kept driving in the dark. And all down the block we'd hear yelling from doorways and store fronts, front steps and other corners, voices winking on like firelight, like fireflies. Lights, your lights, hey, lights. Benediction. The fly is giving another sermon. We bow to mud, receiving absolution from a worm. Impatient with the pace of prayer, the journey's too long to make on our knees. We scour the alleys for discarded slogans, for proverbs banned from Bibles, ignited by guitars, electric fire, branding air with a graffiti of psalms. My clothesline whip drove wind and stars. Pigeons, not ponies, pulled my drosky. At dusk, we traced the peddler's dirge to the misted mouth of a viaduct that swallowed full moons. The horizon was strung on the other side. But when a border of boxcars rumbled its drums, we fled down the neon trail, tail of a comet known as Cermak Road. Night was that narrow a strip of darkness between shop signs. Snow fell from the height of a streetlight. I knew the names of seven attending angels, but was 17 before I saw my first J. Yet I worshiped the natural world like an immigrant in an adopted country, the one in which he should have been born. For me, the complexity of a grasshopper catapulting from the Congo behind a billboard was a refutable proof of God and his baffling order and in my heart, I still kneel on a weed lot in summer, seeking benediction beneath the glittering cross of a dragonfly. I thought I'd read a couple of topical pieces. This is a Halloween piece. It's called Silhouettes. The alley became a river in the rain a river with currents of clattering cans and a flow of cardboard. The boy would wake to the headlights of lightning spraying the walls of a small room and lie listening to the single note of drops pinging the metal hood of a blue bulb that glowed above a garage door. Finally, he'd go to the window and look down. The blue bulb gave the rain a bluish gleam. Rotted drain pipes gushed like dislocated fountains. Flooded tar roofs seemed to tilt spilling waterfalls through the sluices of fire escapes. At the mouth of an alley, a streetlight swirled, slowly disappearing down the whirlpool of a sewer. And beyond the aura of the streetlight, on a street whose name and numbers had been washed away, shadows moved aimlessly through rain. Tonight they had their collars raised. He could catch glimpses of them passing by the mouth of the alley. Even when he couldn't see, even when he couldn't see them, he could sense their presence, shapes that he'd named silhouettes, 
shadows that threw shadows, that inhabited the hourless times of night stolen from dreams, when it seemed to the boy as if he'd been summoned awake only to lie there wondering for what reason he'd been summoned. He couldn't remember when he'd become aware of the presence or when he first thought of them as silhouettes. He had never thought of them as anything else, not ghosts, not spirits. Silhouettes were enough to haunt him. Others had their own names for shadows. Downstairs, the Ukrainian kid who practiced the violin slept with his arms extended in the shape of a cross to ward off the dead. Across the alley in a basement flat, a Puerto Rican girl prayed as if begging before a vigil candle flickering the picture of the Virgin on her bureau. And sometimes the smell of the coal furnace behind the grate that opened on purgatory would fade into a faint scent of roses. There were guys who carried knives taped inside their socks to school who still slept at the edges of their beds in order to leave room for their guardian angels. There were girls who wore mascara like a mask, who swore they'd seen Nina, the beautiful high school girl who had plunged from a roof one summer night. Nina had sneaked out that night to meet her boyfriend, Choco, a kid who played the conga and had gone AWOL to see her. Choco, his conga drum strapped over his shoulder, had led her up a fire escape to the roof where he slept on an old mattress. They took angel dust, which made the moon seem near enough to step onto from the roof. The girl said that on moonlit nights, music would wake them, a song whose beat they all recognized, though none of them could hum back its melody. And they would see a fantasma, Nina, her hair flying, blouse ballooning open, falling past their windows, but falling so slowly it seemed as if they might take for, it might take forever for her to hit the street. And there were apparitions in broad daylight, the mute, night sharp, the mute knife sharpener pushing his screeching whetstone up alleys, the peddlers with clothesline whips flicking blinded horses as their wagons rumbled by, tottering under jumbled loads of uprooted cellars and toppled attics, the hunchbacked woman who walked bent from the waist as if doubled over by the weight of a lifetime's length of filthy gray hair that streamed from her bowed head and swept the pavement before her. They seemed part of the streets. If anyone noticed it, it was only to glance away, but the boy secretly regarded them as if he were witnessing refugees from a cruel fairy tale groping their way through the ordinary world. He wondered where they disappeared to, where they slept at night and what they dreamed. Beside the daytime apparitions, the silhouettes seemed nearly invisible, camouflaged by night, shadows who'd broken their connection with, to whatever had thrown them, and now wandered free like dreams escaped from dreamers. They emerged from Vidox on nights when the Vidox exhaled fog and manhole covers steamed. Where they stood in dripping doorways, they made the doorways darker. When they stepped into the open, shadows but shadows no longer supported by walls or trailed along pavement. The rain slanting through the glow of streetlights and shop signs beaded off them like molten electricity. Oncoming headlights bent around them. Flashes of lightning traced their outlines. The boy could sense them moving along the street and wondered if tonight was the night for which he'd been summoned awake when the silhouettes would finally come up the alley past the guardian's streetlight now swirling and sinking, and assembled below his window, looking up at his face, pressed against the spattered pane, their eyes and mouths open onto darkness like the centers of guitars. 
Love at such a night, laced with running water, irreparable, riddled with a million leaks. A night shaped like a shadow thrown by your absence. Every crack trickles, every overhang drips. The screech of nighthawks has been replaced by the splash of rain. The rain falls from the height of streetlights. Each drop contains its own shattering blue bulb. Here's the other topical one, <laughs> election day. <laughs> Though decked out in the stars and stripes, the polling place was still a funeral home. But then ours was a precinct of funeral homes, the way some neighborhoods are known for their shoe stores or butcher shops. On election day, the usually phantasmal aldermen we're out shaking hands, dressed in black cashmere overcoats like proper mourners. The air smelled of cigars and bars and incense from the church whose doors stood open as if at any moment a coffin might come barging into traffic. A cortege of black caddies lined the tow zones. It might be a deceptive day with two-party weather. One side of the street Indian summer, December on the other, especially when wind muscled the shadows that gathered as if the dead were lurking, lost souls, spirits wandering like drunks wondering where they'd parked their cars, ghosts, most of them still voting. <laughs> That's really good. I am... Um, you know, as a reader, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, genre and, and poetry and, and fiction. And, but as a writer, I, I think I've done everything I possibly can to try to think about it in some other way. And I, I don't really, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not preaching this and I'm not under any illusion that it, it might even be of interest to anybody besides, <laughs> besides myself. But... I mean, what interests me when I sit down to write is I don't even, I don't even think about poetry or fiction, at least at the start. I, I kind of, I'm interested in counterpoint, you know, so in other words, I don't think you can have poetry without having prose, obviously. You can't have formal poetry or you can't have, um, you, you can't have free verse without formal poetry. There, there, there are these relationships bet between everything. What makes literature, with what makes writing magical, are simple things like the relationship between the title and the rest of the piece, the counterpoint between the title, and everything else that's going to come after that title, and the way it sits up there on top of whatever you're calling it—a poem or a story. And, and in line with thinking, of, always trying to think about those. Those dynamic relationships and the kind, those kinds of counterpoints. For me, I, I think about modes, and and the overarching way and the way they overarch genres. Did you say motives? Modes. Modes. Yeah. So you know, like sometimes I think I'm working in the lyrical mode. Sometimes I think I'm working in the narrative mode. And it doesn't matter if I'm writing a poem. I could be working in the narrative mode. I could be working in the dramatic mode. 
I could be working in the expository mode. And, and mostly when writers write, they're working in a combination of all those modes. And they're playing one off another. We, you know, as Mary said, we, we, I think we've come to identify different genres with different modes, which is kind of silly if you actually look at the history of the thing, to think that poetry is only about the lyrical mode. But I think the fact of the matter is that that's how we mostly uh, do think about poetry, as we think that fiction is mostly about the narrative mode, despite the example of somebody like James Joyce, who's of course a, a, a great lyrical writer in prose. Um, you know, little things like epiphany. I mean, if you really look at an epiphany, what is it? It's probably moving, probably finding something within the narrative mode that can generate the lyrical mode and moving to, to the lyrical mode, which is exactly what the dead does. Hmm. So, I mean, that, that just in, in a kind of a thumbnail sketch um, of, of, how I, of how I think of this stuff when I, when I uh, write it. And um, I've, I've got about five or 10 minutes. I thought I'd read another piece, a couple more. Three windows. The first was painted stuck many times over, each time a fresh color. The ropes of the second were frayed, weights lost in the sash. It must have crashed like a guillotine, perhaps beheading a song, and they replaced the paint with cardboard. The third opened opposite a wall. Whoever lived here left on the sill, beside the ashtray of a seashell, burnt matchsticks in the shape of a man, his erect penis, the length of his arms and legs. Jim, that wasn't funny. You don't think that's funny? No, I was kidding. It was supposed to be funny. I thought it was funny. No, it was funny. It's a joke. Am I not understanding? No, 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 no. It's, it's a joke. It's very funny. I, I, don't, I don't know why I built that little match. <laughs> because you're a man. <laughs> Vespers. <laughs> Wearing a surplus of billowing curtains, an altar boy kneels ringing a bell at the shoreline of an undertow. A black umbrella opens like an angry blow, bruising the underside of clouds. Rain turns backyards to broth. A borrow of soup bones sets off like a blood clot, like for a stroke. Above back alley roofs, stalagmites of spires vanish, dismantled from bottom up by fog, the labor of eons erased in an afternoon. Through the cracked, lamp-blacked spectacles of a cellar window, poisonous pulpits erected by drizzle ascend. What was the record wingspan for a crucified Christ? Maybe in the old Polish church on Ashland. They didn't have a black Madonna who wept real tears like a doll or a sister with a stigmata, but their son with his long sinewy arms ending in the punctuation of nailed palms was second to none. By the flicker of vigil candles, he seemed to take flight. In the glow of the sanctuary lamp, his wounds were varying reflections of red as if his bare, agonized body had been kissed by different shades of lipstick. 
Once, when I thought I was in love, I was sure I recognized the imprint of her lips on the wounds of his feet. Beneath a daylight moon, the bag lady kids called a hag, forged double beneath the hump she lugged everywhere. Were she the goddess of the hunt, forever young, life as a bow, half bare, the gilded fall of her undone chignon would have made nakedness demure. Instead of matted gray flow, the grotesque can take the length of a life to grow, swept the pavement before her every step. A dog pack ran, further clearing the way, her battered straw purse proudly swung from the mouth of a dirty white chow. After they report their own absence to the Department of Missing Persons, and the <laughs> crime of nostalgia seems the only defense against amnesia, it's to this street that prodigals come to live out those final days before they are reduced to seeking forgiveness. One last nuzzle against the shoulder of night, along which stars are sprinkled with the disorder of freckles beneath a brass strap. Soon enough, the sailors float home from around the block, face down through the old neighborhoods that lie below, a sea of flooded basements. What's all this suffering for, Father? Nothing, my son. The same as all this love. I tried to pay for a link of sausage with a rosary snarled in what I thought was a pocket of loose change. That was Stuart Dybeck. Next, he and Mary Carr answer a few questions from the audience. The first asked for advice on how a writer should deal with rejection letters. Dybeck had a one-word response. Drink. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good excuse to have a cup. Well, I'll tell you something. I used to... I applied for a Guggenheim Fellowship in Poetry 18 times and was rejected 17. I sent, you know, probably, I don't know, 20, 15 poems a year to the New Yorker since I was 22. And they started publishing them like two years ago. It's funny. So, and, and still I think, I don't know, I just think of all the great writers, you know, I think of Moby Dick not being read. I think of Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy selling 2,000 copies the first four years it was in print. You know, there are just a lot of much better writers than I who took an ass whipping, worse than mine. So that's what I think. I'll give you, um, I know it's not really what your question's about, your question's how to deal with rejection, but I... One thing I tell my students is that when people send a manuscript out, they always think that there's a, it, it's, it either gets accepted or it gets rejected. And actually, there's an in-between. Uh, editors of magazines um, are her- heroic people, usually um, laboring with too, far too few resources to keep a literary culture alive in our country. So if you get a little note at the bottom, sorry, send again. It really does mean something. There isn't any reason that editor would write that. And so there's that in-between thing. It means that at that point, and, and if he signs his name, R.G., <laughs> look him up on, <laughs> or her, up on the masthead, because now you've got a, a, you know, the next time you'll send them, you'll say, look, you know, you were kind enough to say you like my last piece. Here's another one. 
<laughs> always send something better. And, and I mean, and that's the honest to God truth. So that, that when you go through this tedious um, career building um, trek that every writer has to go through, that's kind of how you navigate your way through literary magazines. It's like how I still keep dating. Same thing, really. <laughs> the next question asked, how do they judge and critique their own work? That's a really good question. <laughs> I, I don't really have, I, um, I haven't heard that one too often, so I don't have a ready answer, I'm sorry. I just am, I, I feel, I live in a constant state of really pathetic disappointment. <laughs> every day I write and every day I kind of look at what I've written that day. And I know fiction writers are always real happy about the, what they write in, a, not really happy about what they write, but they seem to have some kind of thing going on that I just have never had happen, a kind of, I don't know. Um, there's not really, I mean, most of the sort of standard measures, like whether everybody else likes it or whether it does well in the marketplace, I think are not really good measures because it's easy to do well, easier to do well in the marketplace than it is to learn how to write, I think. So. I, I think the reason I had a hard time answering your question was that I, I don't really, once it's out and done with, don't think I, I don't think about it because what, is on my mind are all the unfinished pieces that I haven't been able to even solve enough to get to the state the other ones were in. And, 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 that, and that that so absorbs what I think about, the pieces I want to write and that I haven't been able to, to get a handle on, that I, I don't have any energy left over for thinking about the, about the other pieces except that if there's some way I could keep from copying myself, I'd like to do it. But I, I mean, and I really do think that's why I didn't have much of an answer for your question is that, that I, I don't find myself deeply engaged in, in, in thinking about that older stuff. It, it is what it is. Yeah, I, but as you're writing it, do you have a sense? I, I sort of think as I'm writing well, it, it's like. I don't ever trust it, you know. It's, yeah, I think it's, it's none it's of my business. It's manic, sort of. manic depressive time from your writing, so. Yeah. I have a friend who's a one-year plan. That's a pathetic part. <laughs> That's why this whole scam, this whole house of cards, is going to come down at any second. Um, No, I mean, with prose, I know that if I, at this point, I know if I send it to them, they will give me money. And that's my goal, to get it off my desk and onto theirs and get their money, is my plan. <laughs> but in terms of the actual writing, I'm clueless every second. Are you clueless? Not just about writing, though. Yeah. <laughs> that cat, you gotta name that damn cat. Yes, Next, someone asked about taking inspiration from the other arts or from the past. I mean, what I envy about all the other arts is the sensuality that that language in and of itself can have. And so as a writer, one of the things I've tried to do is, is swim upstream against abstract, the, the, the essential abstraction of language. And, 
and copy the other art, try to copy the other arts by making it as sensual as possible. But the, but going back to Mary's point, I think the one enormous advantage that that, that language has, and you certainly of course see it in poetry because of the compression that at least at one time was inherent in what we thought of poetry, is, is that language has a tremendous agility. And where I'm going with that is is that, that that agility that language has where it can go from thought and thought to feeling, from concreteness to abstraction in a turn of phrase, seems to me to make it particularly perfect to deal with memory. And, and what fascinates me really isn't the past exactly, but, but the working of memory. It's compressive quality, it's, it's lyrical quality, uh, what it says about uh, how we perceive the world, and, and, uh, and, and I, I, I plead guilty to that being a, a, a constant subject that, that, that I go back to again and again and again. And, and I, you know, I, I think fiction, is, as well as poetry, is, a, is just a great medium for memory. And, and the proof of that is that in, in every other medium you can think of fl the flashback is, is really a, a highly suspect you know, so if a playwright is able to do it, like Arthur Miller, he's a great playwright. If Fellini is able to do it, but really in Hollywood, flashback is the F word. Whereas in fiction, it's absolutely natural to that medium. The, the most yeoman fiction writer just does flashback instinctively. You know, may perhaps not well, but it's just the tool with that 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 no other, no 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 other um, uh, genre really really has. Uh, quite as in, inherent to it as uh, fiction, nonfiction too, for that matter, and 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 because poetry can work in the narrative, uh, lyrical form, and and a lot of times it's going from the narrative to the lyrical, where, in, in which you get that 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 jolt that memory gives us. Anyway, I've, I've gone on too too long. Next, Stuart Dybeck was asked to elaborate on his discussion of the narrative and lyrical modes in writing. Each of those modes has at its heart something that. That makes it, that that separates it from from everything else. So when you work in the narrative mode, the, the the reason we will always have that. The reason is is that one of the reasons we tell stories or write poems is to try to make order out of chaos. And the narrative mode, because it usually works along a chronological timeline, has this tremendous secret at the heart of it, which is that when you put things in time, you are implying that you believe in cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Whereas the lyrical mode really isn't that interested in cause and effect. It's, 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 it's a mode all about associations. The associations can be through a, a, alliteration, rhyme, so on and so forth. It can be through image, the way we dream. And, and, and so, you know, each, each different, and the same thing with the expository and the dramatic modes, when you go into, each mode has at its heart some particular strength that, that a writer can then harness, and, and when you play them off of each other... You see, see, but I disagree with you about those modes being of kind of equal value. The truth is, most of the really poetic prose of this century, I think, sucks, you know? Other than, I mean, I like yours, you know? I, I'm, <laughs> no, I do. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who's really big on Finnegan's Wake when I was like 22 years old, and then I woke up when I was like 28, and I just thought, oh, for Christ's sake snap out of it. 
And so, I mean, I... You, you don't know, like Gatsby? Gatsby, I like. But there's a big difference. Gatsby has a fucking plot. No, but and at, Finnegan's at, way... What I'm saying, though, is it's the, inter, it's the relationship between the... It, it's, it's the writer knowing when to go lyric, when to go narrative. I know, but I, I'm saying... No, but I think Gatsby certainly, yeah. I mean, it's not that there's not poetic prose that I love, but I just think of, you know, those books that they think of that are so, all those books are ununified. I mean, the problem with poetic prose is what unifies prose is plot. You know, language is, is you can make sonic, you can have sonic um, techniques in language, which Joyce has a plenty and which I've certainly learned from as a writer. I mean, I think of a, a story like The Dead, but I'm thinking of specifically of The Wake, I guess, of Finnegan's Wake. And it's, the problem with it is its lack of unity. And the problem, you know, the problem, I just wrote the introduction to the wasteland for modern library. You know, and, and there's a great line by the English critic Graham Huff that says, people who find a deep organic unity in the race, wasteland mean they have just got used to it. <laughs> you know? And I, I sometimes think with our more lyrical um, pieces, that's kind of true. I mean, I often feel that way. I'm a crank. That's why they invited me here. The final question asked if writing prose opens up new possibilities for writing poetry. Uh, it usually works the opposite for me. I mean, poetry for me is, the, is where I get my slag heap from, and I loot it. And, I, I, and, and when poems don't work, sometimes they open into stories, and if the characters start talking back to me, then I let them. And, but very seldom does it work in the opposite direction. Yeah, but like that story, Lights, that first story he read about the lights, calling out lights, I was thinking that could very easily, I could lineate that and make, you know, make that a poem somehow. I mean, to me, it, didn't it seem like a, you know, a little poem? It was very poetic. Yeah, that's what I think. Could I, could I is it all right for me to ask a question? Because I'd like to go back to the question about the memoir and, and ask Mary, maybe she doesn't have any opinions, but it seems that poets, you, you know, one thinks of Lee Young Lee's book and Michael Ryan's book and Deborah Diggs' book, and that, that many, many poets seem to gravitate naturally toward the memoir. I just wondered if you'd ever thought about, if you have any ideas why that particular uh, genre in prose seems to attract um, people who obviously have the skill to write other kinds of books in prose, but, but that's, the, that's where they go. I, th I think that's the myth, is that they have the skill to write other kinds of books. I think, um, no, I mean, I think for my own money, a memoir is a much cheaper form than a novel or a short story. It's, it's episodic. What's going to hold the language or what's going to hold a reader or draw a reader in is the language, and a memoir language is character. And it's a very... It's why it's been treated as a, as a kind of almost like outsider art, you know, like writing the Lord's Prayer on a grain of rice or something. You know, like unless you were Winston Churchill, for most of the, say, the last century, memoir was really, you know, it was for Hollywood starlets and, you know, military lunatics. And um, so I, I actually think the confessional mode of poetry, you know, Oh, you know, 
makes people think I'm in, I'm, I'm in Memoryville anyway and I need a new car. You know, I mean, that's the way I thought about it. I mean, it, re it really is. I was thinking, what can I do? I know I don't know enough about the novel to write a novel. I tried to write a novel, and the character who was me was just, you know, behaved better than I ever had. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think a real fiction writer will use a novel to tell the truth, whereas I was really going to use it to just spiff everything up, you know, make, make myself look better than I was. Does that answer your question or no? Yeah, I just wondered what your opinion was, yeah. That was Mary Carr and Stuart Dybeck speaking at the Newberry Library in Chicago on October 27, 2004. The event was sponsored by the Poetry Foundation as part of the Poetry Off the Shelf series. Mary Carr has written four books of poetry, Abacus, The Devil's Tour, Viper Rum, and Sinner's Welcome, and three memoirs, The Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit. Stuart Dybeck's short stories are collected in Childhood and Other Neighborhoods, The Coast of Chicago, and I Sailed with Magellan. He has written two books of poetry, Brass Knuckles and Streets in Their Own Ink. His work also appears in many anthologies. You can read more about Mary Carr and Stuart Dybeck, as well as samples of their work, at poetryfoundation.org. You'll also find many other articles about poets and poetry an online archive of more than 9,000 poems and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from PoetryFoundation.org.